Shalom. Welcome to the New Millennium Edition of the Torah Teaching. This audio program is produced by Lion and Lamb Ministries and is presented by Monty Judah. The book of Numbers, uh, chapter 8, the Hebrew name for it is Bamidbar. Bamidbar means in the wilderness. It's a book about the events of things that took place in the wilderness while the children of Israel were traveling with the cloud, the pillar, with Moses, with the tabernacle in the great wilderness that 40 years. And it begins with how they basically got there and got started in there, and it, and it kind of ends with how they got out of there. But these are some events that transpired uh, while they were in the wilderness. This particular portion is really a very intriguing portion in the Torah from this standpoint. It sets itself off from other portions of the Torah because, and this is part of my learning, I've just been learning this myself here recently, in the ancient times there is a belief that the book of Numbers was actually three different books, that we call it one book and we have it bound and printed for us, and we've studied from it as one book, making the Torah five books with this book here. However, let me show you an interesting proverb, Proverbs 9, and the sages of Israel say that the deeper wisdom of the Torah has this understanding. From Proverbs 9, verse 1, wisdom has built her house, She has hewn out her seven pillars. And what is understood from the sages is that the greatest wisdom is that which is the written Torah given to us, and that in fact there are seven divisions, or if you will, seven books, seven sections to the Torah. In this portion that we're going to review this evening, and beginning in Numbers chapter 8 and extending on over through, I believe it's through chapter 12, inclusive, Yes, chapter 12 inclusive, there's actually the divisions of three books here. There's a book buried inside of this portion. And I would like to take a little time and emphasis to uh, point that out, because it's offset even in the Torah scroll in a very special way as well. I'm not really going to spend a lot of time on the first part of chapter 8. The title of this portion is Baha Allah Sakha. And it comes from the second verse of chapter 8, when you mount the lamps, which is kind of an interesting way of saying when you ignite the lamps, when you light the lamp. He says when you mount the lamps. And it gives some inference that the menorah that was in the temple, that there was literally a kind of a cup, an actual lamp that came down from its stem and that they trimmed the wick and put the oil and, and then they would mount that back up on it. So it gives a little insight into... Uh, the actual work of lighting of the menorah, of which was the light uh, in the sanctuary, the light in the temple proper. It goes a little bit further after giving some instruction concerning that, and it talks about the silver trumpets, and it talks about how they are to be blown and how they are to be dressed. Then in chapter 9, it talks about the issue we call the second Passover. Passover is to be observed on the month of Aviv, the month of Nisan, on the eve of the 14th, and one of its restrictions are is that you cannot uh, have come into contact with a dead person on that date. If you do, you are excused from keeping Passover, and you are to keep it one month later. This is the instruction that tells you to keep the Passover one month later because of that, because they do not want to mix 
in any way, shape, or form the business of you coming to the Passover table to celebrate life at the death of the Lamb and its life that it gives and mixing that with any of your feelings that you may have with tending to a relative or a friend or, or someone like that. In other words, they want complete separation from those issues so that you only celebrate life when you come to the Passover table. Well, there's always going to be that issue of maybe in your family you wanted to keep Passover, but you had a family member, and in that case, the Torah gives provision. If that happens on the eve of the 14th of Aviv, then you celebrate the Passover one month later. It's called the second Passover, so that there's complete separation at all times. This particular chapter addresses and deals with that. Then we get to chapter 10, and I'm kind of accelerating to get down to the heart of this. And finally, we come toward the end of chapter 10, where, as you'll notice there, verses 33, it says, Thus they set out from the mount of the Lord three days' journey, with the ark of the covenant of the Lord journeying in front of them for the three days to seek out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was over them by day when they set out from the camp. Now, before I go any further, let's just make sure we review and everybody's on the same page with what we're talking about. Children of Israel are camped in the wilderness. We have the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, it's affixed in the center. The tribes of Israel are arrayed in particular ways around that. In other words, the camp of Judah is in a particular place, and Zebulun and Issachar, they all have their proper places. And how they would know, how the whole camp would know, hey, it's time to get packed up, we're getting ready to go, they would see the pillar of the cloud would literally raise up off of the tabernacle. It would raise up, which would be kind of a preliminary signal, oh, the Lord is getting ready to move out, and therefore let us get our tents ready and let us go. And when the cloud would begin to move, the priests at that point had disassembled the tabernacle, and it was all in kind of packed array, ready to go. And the first group, the first element that would move out following the cloud would be the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant, that big box that carried the tablets uh, and the mercy seat. And they had a special covering for it and poles and priests would carry this. And that was what would lead out the children of Israel. And then others would fall into formation in what they called martial array as they would walk out. Now, that's essentially what the scripture is saying here. It's trying to describe this process by which the Ark of the Covenant would then lead out following the pillar in the cloud. And when the pillar would come to a stop, uh, then they would know, okay, that's where the Lord wants to camp. And as it would settle back down again, they would build a tabernacle there, and then they would set up the campground accordingly. It is from this example, it's from this little simple procession, then comes these particular words. Apparently, Moses would say these things as the Ark of the Covenant would begin to move, and that's what we're looking at verses 35 and 36, and I want to concentrate on those just a little bit this evening. Then it came about when the Ark set out that Moshe would say, Rise up, O Lord, and let thy enemies be scattered. Let those who hate thee flee before thee. And when it came to rest, he said, Return thou, O Lord, to the myriad thousands of Israel. These two verses I just read to you, if you were to have an ancient Torah scroll, if we had an ancient Torah scroll that was done by a scribe, you know, one of the ones that's copied from kosher parchment dating all the way back to Moses, you would see in the Torah scroll something very special at this point. Just before verse 35, 
you would see the Hebrew letter nun inverted. And following verse 36, you would see another Hebrew letter, nun, inverted. Now, the Hebrew letter nun, the best way I can describe that letter to you without having a, a board up here is it looks like the symbol that you see all the time, the bracket. You know, that little squared off, it almost looks like a, a bracket. And by inverting it, normally it's open to the left and closed to the right, only in the Torah scroll, it's open to the right and closed to the left. It's made exactly backwards of the way the letter noon would be made. And it separates the text in chapter 10, ending at verse 34, and it separates chapter 10 from chapter 11. These two inverted noons. Now you can imagine that throughout the ages that the sages of Israel have been asking themselves, because normally the Torah script is just letter after letter after letter, line after line after line, but this is something special. There's very few times in the Torah that the scribes are permitted to do anything, shall we say, ornamental or different or unique about, and this is copied from exactly the same way it has been copied over the ages. So the question that has always been asked by the sages of Israel is, what is the purpose of this inverted noon character to offset this text? And the simple answer is this. Verse 35 and verse 36 is so powerful, it is its own book in the Torah. Now think about that for a moment. Now we've got some pretty powerful books in the Torah. But they're saying that these two verses carry the wisdom and the power equal to any other book in Torah. And in fact, within the book of Numbers, they're saying that from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way up through chapter 10, verse 34, that's a book. Verses 35 and 36 is a book by itself. And from chapter 11 on through the end of the book of Numbers, it is a book. Now, I don't know that, uh, you know, in any other normal sort of way, uh, if you were a printer, if you were trying to make copies of it, that you could quite justify having its own piece of parchment all by itself. Because the, uh, as you know, the Torah, it's, it's line after line and, and so forth. So it just blends together in the Torah. It's very easy for us to print this and not give it its own title page and separation and so forth. But... It doesn't really have to have its own title page in a printer's form, uh, even in the copying form. But what they're really trying to emphasize is for you to stop and take note because there's something extremely important being expressed here. If you were to attend um, a normal traditional synagogue service, a Torah service, where they actually, on Shabbat morning, they open the ark, the box that is back behind with the Torah scrolls, and they bring the Torah scroll out to be unrolled on the bima table for it to be canted and taught from. In the course of them bringing out the Torah scroll, there would be some Hebrew prayers and some cantillation that would take place. The cantor would be saying certain things. He would be issuing certain liturgical prayers. And as they would open the ark to bring the scroll forward, the first words that you would hear him say are, Rise up, O Lord, 
and let thy enemies be scattered, and let those who hate thee flee before thee. And at the moment that they put the scroll back into the ark, at the moment it is placed back in, you would hear the cantor saying, And when it came to rest, he said, Return thou, O Lord, to the myriad of thousands of Israel. That in a traditional worship manner of bringing the Torah out in a normal, what we call Torah service, these are the foundational words of all Hebrew liturgy of the worship of God. To this day, in synagogue service, these were the words in the wilderness that was the only known traditional liturgy with the exception of, we just learned from number six, the Shema, the watchword of Israel. The confession, common confession of our faith, which we just did before I came up, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, blessed be his name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. The common confession of faith, the watchword of Israel, the Shema. But these words are just as powerful liturgically and by common confession of all Israel throughout the ages. And it's really a fascinating passage. And before we go any further into the next section, I want to spend just a little bit of time so that we all have the same appreciation for is certainly some of these things that are expressed here. The first element is to rise up, O Lord, and the second element is to return, O Lord. Return thou, O Lord. And there's a little controversy with that last part, by the way, and I'll mention to you in just a moment. Rise up, O Lord, let thy enemies be scattered. Let those who hate thee flee from before thee. The question that has been posed by this age is, who are the enemies of God? And we have a lot of people in the world who believe in different gods. Who are the enemies of God versus those who are just well-meaning? You know, they, maybe they're a little misinformed. We have, you know, we have people who love God, and I'm talking about God, the one true God. We have people who love the one true God. We have some people who truly hate God. And then we have some who are just misinformed. So how could you classify them as enemy of God? They're, they're still learning. They're still trying to figure out which end is up. So they ask the question, who are those that are spoken of that hate God that are to flee from before the Torah, from before the ark? And they say it's a very simple definition. All those who hate Israel. It's that simple. If they hate Israel, then they're the ones being referred to by God. They're the ones being referred to by the instruction of Moses, let them flee. The reason is, is because the ark was before Israel. It marched out first before Israel. It was Israel that was marching with it. And therefore, if they come against, they are obviously coming against the ark and all that's with the ark, which is Israel. So the answer is, this reference is making a reference to having God rise up in victory over the enemies of Israel. We know, of course, in the story that when the ark went out into the battle, that as long as Israel submitted to the Lord and the ark was before them, they couldn't be stopped. They were always victorious in battle. It's when they departed from the Lord, when they didn't have the ark, when they weren't trusting the Lord for the fate of the battle, that's when they got themselves in trouble. And if you were to read the book of uh, Judges, 
while you would go through story after story after story of, I mean, it just goes back and forth. I mean, it's almost, you get seasick reading it, you know, where they obeyed the Lord and God blessed them and then they didn't obey the Lord and they didn't trust the Lord and their enemies ran over them, you know. And they just goes through recounting judge after judge after judge of how they, when they obeyed the Lord, why it went well. When they trust the Lord, it went well. And when they didn't trust the Lord, they lost. Just over and over again. And this call here is to call upon God and his strength to be the force and the power that goes before Israel. Not Israel by themselves, but God of Israel going forth in his strength. And they use the term rise up. And it's very fascinating the depth of this particular term to rise up because it's the same depth of meaning as to come literally out of the grave. Rise up, literally be resurrected, rise up all the way. I mean, come from the place they would never have imagined all the way to the strength of what they would never have imagined in that kind of gesture. And then we come to the second uh, verse, verse 36, and it talks about when the ark comes to a rest, when it comes to a stop. And it says, return thou, O Lord, to the myriad thousands of Israel. Some versions say unto the myriad thousands of Israel. I've got to break this down a little bit. Is it asking for the Lord to return to Israel or is the text asking for Israel to return to the Lord? And the fact is that in the strictest Hebrew text, you take out that preposition to, it says return Israel to the Lord. Israel, you return to the Lord, not the Lord to Israel. You know the uh, that famous uh, plaque that's gone around for several years, I think it's been around 10, 15 years, called Footsteps. It tells a little story about footsteps in the sand. There's God's footsteps and this fellow's footsteps. And, and this fellow is looking back and he's saying, God, you know, I see the path where you and I have walked together, but every once in a while I see where there's only one set of footsteps. You know, where where are you, God, when that's happening? Where, where where are you at? You know, there's just one set of footsteps. You know, and the man's assuming it's his footsteps. You know, he's walking along the sand. He's looking. He said, well, where are you, God? And then God, of course, explains to him. He says, oh, well, that was the times when I was carrying you. That's the reason why there's only one set of footsteps. That the real footsteps in the sand are that of God. Just every once in a while, temporarily, we we disturb the sand a little bit. But, you know, the average man thinks the other way around. The average man thinks that he's the reference point. He's what's really happening. If you look at your own life, you're saying, well, this is where I'm at. Where are you, God? When in the truth of the matter is, the reality of God is much more real than you. It is you who is temporal and God who is eternal. So if you see something that's consistent, that's kind of going through, it's really probably about God, not about you. It's just that you get to be added in. You get some benefit here. And part of the explanation of this verse, and the reason why the writers and all of the scholars try to put the emphasis on this, of return thou, O Lord, to the myriads, the thousands of Israel, is because from our perspective, if we're going to return, if we are going to reach out to God, the sensation that we're going to have is that we were always there and then God suddenly appears to us. 
And we know for a fact that that's really, an, a, that's a distorted picture of what's really been going on. The Lord has always been there. It's just that you weren't with him. You didn't recognize him. You didn't sense his presence. And suddenly you came into the understanding of knowing, gee, I guess he was finally always there. One of the observations that's made that goes along with this thinking about God's presence in this way is the ancient argument about Satan. Whereas that Satan said that he would rather be in charge in hell rather than serve in heaven. Only there's something really fouled up about that thinking. Because God is in charge of hell too. Now the question is, you get to serve either in heaven or you get to serve in hell. That's the choice. There is no choice that you get to be in charge of anything. There is no choice that, hey, I'm the one who's the cat's meow. I am the center of the universe. And we'll just plug God in, you know, when I think it's appropriate. Can we be real honest with one another? A lot of us uh, in, our, in our early spiritual training, we tend to view our life as that we're really the righteous one. Actually, I'm emphasizing the word right. It's my right. And that's our definition of righteousness. I want what's my rights. And so when God, you know, big God, comes along and he starts making demands on our life about he'd like us to not do that, he'd prefer we do this and other. So, you know, we've got to qualify him. You know, I don't know if he really wants what's best for me. You know, besides that, I don't want him interfering with any of my rights. And we get all bound up about what is right, you know, freedom, absolute freedom to do anything you want versus freedom to obey and follow the Lord. And, and it's one of the real spiritual dynamics that we have to go through in our maturing process is to come to terms with all of that. Who's righteousness? Who, who's really God and who's the man? And in this particular thing, it's trying to emphasize to us that our perception is going to be that the Lord's going to be returning to us when in truth of fact, if you read the straight Hebrew text, it's really us returning to him. And there's a prophetic dimension to this passage. You know, all the Torah has a prophetic element to it. And going back to verse 35, I find it fascinating that they would put so much emphasis on this rise up part being like the resurrection. Now stop and think about the great work of Yeshua the Messiah. Because, you know, when Peter stood up there to preach on uh, Shavuot, the big thing he was preaching about was not so much emphasizing that uh, he was the Messiah. Oh, he said that. The big thing he was emphasizing was he came up out of the ground. He was resurrected. He's alive. And that was the really, that was the thing that grabbed Israel. When the new covenant began, they were talking about he's been resurrected. He has risen up. And so the emphasis here with trying to understand the Torah properly is to look at this first dimension of he's risen up. And we know that Messiah is the living word of God. Amen. And so his first message to us is to rise up. And the second message, as powerful as that one, is to return to us, O Lord. So just like tonight when we were singing the songs, there was a mention made of the Messiah soon return. You see those two messages? Rise up, the resurrection. Return, O Lord. 
Well, I have news for you with regard to where the Messiah is at at the moment. Since the day that Yeshua ascended and went to his father, there has never been any question about whose kingdom it's going to be or whose God. There's never been any question. Oh, some question down here on earth with some men. And for them, it will appear that it was a sudden new thought and new idea that God would return. But the truth of the matter is, it has always been this plan. It has always been the plan that the Messiah would rise up and that would a time come when he would return. Now, that little simple message, they have a piece of text in the Torah that they say that message to rise up and to return is so powerful that it is the power of any book of Torah. Any one of the other five books. The message of rising up and returning is equal and equivalent in power, majesty, understanding, wisdom, knowledge of God equal to any of the other instructions. Now, I suggest to you it's equal to the other instructions because that's what the other portions of the Torah are trying to teach us about. They're trying to teach us about the Messiah coming and the work he would be doing and his kingdom and so forth. And in this two short verses, we just told the story. We just told the two most powerful things that the Messiah would do. And we've already seen one of them done. We are the people looking for the second one to happen. In effect, if you were to go like in the Torah service, the Torah has come out. We're reading it. We're dealing with it. We're singing with it. We're trying to understand it. But there's a day coming when it's going to come to rest in Jerusalem. It's going to take up its dwelling place with us permanently. And so we, as we participate in this process of studying and learning from the Torah, in effect, we're acting out literally the great uh, liturgical worship we call the Torah service that's done in the synagogue. It, it's the symbol of what all has been going on and is going on today. I want you to take also note before we leave that passage, the last phrase, to the myriad thousands of Israel. Now, some of your versions may say some of the ten thousands of thousands. And you will notice that the larger number is placed first. In the case of this version, myriad, myriad means millions. Let me read it to you. To the millions of thousands. That is the opposite of way that we would say a large number. And what is understood by the sages is, is that the real reality of this verse wasn't there in the wilderness. The reality will be yet into the future when those who are called Israel will be millions compared to the thousands that were in that day. That Israel will be much greater at that time. Therefore, the emphasis is put not to just give a total number. You know, we're not saying, you know, 14 million you know, 600,000 or whatever, it's trying to show that there's a distinction between what first began with what will be. The irony of it is, is that at that particular time, we know that Israel numbered about 3 million. Women, children, men, about 3 million. We know that the number of soldiers that went out was over 600,000. And if you kind of work out the normal ratios for children and for wives and aunts and uncles and all that kind of thing, why, it, it comes out to about three million. 
that probably was in the camp. And it's referred to as thousands, so you can imagine what a future number millions must be like. You know, to the superlative, to a much greater extent. Meaning that this is something that all Israel throughout all the ages, all the people of God will be a part of and have a part in. So having set that stage with um, these two verses in effect serve as their own book, their own section, their own teaching and thought, and they're set off in the ancient text by the inverted noons, which is kind of like an interesting bracket. In fact, my personal opinion is that having looked through the ancient scripts and text, I think the, the bracket that we use in our language, in the Romantic languages, actually comes from this. It's our version of the letter, Hebrew letter, noon, enlarged, only instead of both of them inverted, we encase them into a thought. And so as you were to read in a text or a book, and you were to read along, and then suddenly you see a bracket, and you see some text, and then a, a closing bracket, you would know the material that's in the bracket is separate and distinct and should be taken into account in a special way as compared to all the other material in the book. And so that's my theory personally about it as to why that particular use of that letter is used in that manner. But there's also a, a symbolic effort that also comes with it. The Hebrew letter noon, that little kind of a, it's just like a little soft C, it's, it's uh, like a bracket, is actually uh, the motion of the hand. And the hand is, is when you want to give a quick motion, you go like that. And that's the sign of, when you go like that, you're making the sign of a fish. You were near a pond and you saw a fish in the water and it went away, went away real quick. I mean, you couldn't catch it. And what was that symbol to the ancient peoples? Life. Boy, that was a lie. That, that was quick. And you hear the word quicken, the English word quicken, it means life. If something was quickened, it means it suddenly darted to life. Being quick is a sign of the strength of life, quickness of life. It moves quickly. If you were to see some animal, you know, laying perfectly still, you would walk up, and if suddenly it jolted, jumped up, and ran off, you say, oh, it's alive. <laughs> you know, that quick movement uh, to it. And so it's kind of interesting from a symbolic standpoint that they use that letter to try to offset and show you those two verses, meaning... Look there because there's something there that's going to be real quick, but it's full of life. You're going to see, you know, it, it, you can't quite catch it, but it's, it's life. You'll see it there to it. And I think maybe that symbolic meaning may be a little closer to the truth of what the inverted noon is about rather than maybe the, even the, the way you'd write out a bracket or print a bracket in a text. We come to... Chapter 11, and the tone of the book of Numbers now moves into really what the dominant message of the book of Numbers is about. This is a group of people who are out in the wilderness. It's hot. It's dirty. There is nothing pleasant in the wilderness. Let me give you a definition of what wilderness is to the ancient peoples. If you could take a bucket of water, you're standing in a piece of ground, and you say, I wonder if this is wilderness. You take a bucket of water, and you pour that bucket of water out on the ground, and then you immediately reach down. If the ground drinks up the water so fast that you cannot take a cloth and absorb some water back out, 
to potentially suck on to drink, to wet your lips and so forth. If the ground sucks the water up that fast, that's called wilderness. It's not really wilderness if you can reach down there and get some of that water and catch it again because the earth didn't swallow it up. The children of Israel were in a place that if you spilt a container of water, it was gone. You couldn't catch any of it. You couldn't even get a cloth down there to get it damp so you maybe you could suck some moisture out of the cloth. That's wilderness. It's real hard. It's not easy. There's only really one thing you do in the wilderness is you ask yourself, when are we leaving? That's really all you do in the wilderness. It's like, when, when are we leaving? Because there is no way we're going to be able to stay here. The children of Israel stayed there for 40 years. And the Lord was teaching them to receive from him. You want water? I'll give you water. You need food? I'll give you food. You need protection? I'll give you protection. Whatever it is that you need, I'm going to be your provider so that you'll trust me, so that you will follow my instruction, that you will do the things that I say. And it is a known fact. We know that the reason why God permitted the children of Israel to be in the wilderness, stay in the wilderness, was that he was testing them, he was proving them, he wanted them to learn to, to trust him, to believe in him. And we also know, the scripture tells us very plainly, that the reason why that generation had to go through all those experiences was so that future generations, including us, would learn this lesson. That we would be able to look back and see our ancestors in this wilderness experience see that the, they had to rely on the Lord, that there was no other choice but the Lord, and the Lord did come through, and the Lord did do what he said, and they did survive, and they made it, and he was they were delivered, and, and everything was fine. And we're supposed to learn, without necessarily being in those same circumstances, we're supposed to learn that we trust the Lord, that that's what we're supposed to do. Paul said it to us in 1 Corinthians 10. Those things that happen in the wilderness are for our admonition and instruction upon whom will fall at the end of the ages. That these lessons, these tests, they're really examples shown to future generations, particularly the generation who is at the end of the ages because they themselves will be confronted with these same issues. And the real issue that we're going to be confronted with is that God will meet our needs. He really will. The most basic of needs, food, water, shelter, deliverance, the most basic of needs, that God will meet them. Now, I want you to read along with me in chapter 11. This is common. This is typical. And, it's, and to me, uh, if, if you know, you ever heard of the, uh, the expression real people, they used to have a television program called Real People. You know, they you know, weren't actors. They're just real people off the street. And, you know, so and these are real people here. These are not spiritual giants. I don't care if they are running around with Moses, if they did cross the Red Sea, if they've already seen God. They're not spiritual giants. They're real people. Just like you and me. And real people, when they get into the wilderness, complain. Okay? They murmur. They grumble. They're not happy. I'm not comfortable, so I don't like it. Um, and let me just kind of set the stage here for just a moment. 
before we read. Have you ever heard of the expression comfortable Christianity? Have you ever heard that expression before? No. A lot of people are looking for comfortable Christianity. Let's not push it. Let's not rock the boat. Let's not get too, too tough here. Let's just make this real nice. Listen, in the wilderness, there is nothing comfortable. There isn't even a place to sit down without you getting sand in your pants. I mean, everything is uncomfortable. The rocks are jagged. They're not smooth. You know, this is tough. You get tired. You get fatigued. Uh, the dust blows in your eyes. Uh, it just never quite works out. You know, you just never can quite get comfortable. And people don't like to be in that. Let's be honest. You know, a lot of us we really don't care to do that. Real people then start complaining. So... Beginning at chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. Now, the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed them, some of the outskirts of the camp. The people therefore cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died out. So the name of that place was called Taborah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Wait a minute, let's stop for a second. You mean to tell me that this great God who loves us, saved us from Egypt, gets so upset because we just do a little complaining that he sends blowtorches out to the edge of the camp. I mean, what is going on here? Does that sound balanced to you? Does that sound reasonable? Well, let's go a little further. Verse 4. And the rabble who were among them, oh, that's an interesting group, and the rabble who were among them had greedy desires, and also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic, but now our appetite is gone. There's nothing at all to look at except this manna. Now the manna was like coriander seed in its appearance like that of bedellium. And the people would go out and gather it and grind it between two millstones or beat it in a mortar, boil it in a pot, make cakes out of it, and it tasted like it's the taste of cakes baked with oil. By the way, that means deep fried. Now, me personally, having grown up in the Midwest, I don't see what the problem is if everything tasted deep fried. <laughs> but you know, every once in a while, I like onions. In fact, I like onions all the time. Really, And when I was reading through this passage many years ago, and I was looking at what was their problem? I mean, they've got deep fried stuff every night. I mean, what's the problem? And I was reading, I said, cucumbers. Well, I like cucumbers. They're okay. Melons. Yeah, I like that. They're okay. More than deep fried? No. No, come on. I love deep fried a lot more than melons and so forth. And then it said leeks and, and onions. I said, whoa, now we're getting into my train. Because I like onions pretty pretty much. And I said, leeks, leeks, what's what are leeks? I actually went out and bought some leeks. And I cooked up potato leek soup to find out what is it that they missed about this? What is it that they liked that so much that they were willing to murmur and complain about the Lord and complain about good deep-fried manna? And I found out that leeks are a little bit like onions, so I figured that's it. You know, they're like onions. So onions I can understand. So leeks I can understand. You know, the onion, garlic always goes good with onions. So I can understand that a little bit. But how, why would they get to the point 
that they would make the Lord so angry over this. And it's in understanding this particular story that I believe is one of the most fundamental issues that every one of you are going to have to come to terms with in your spiritual life or else you are not going to spiritually mature. And that's really the reason why we have it in the Torah. It's a fundamental spiritual lesson. It has to do with the subject of determining the difference between your needs and your wants. Now, the Lord has made promise to us that he will meet our needs. He said, trust me, you have a need, I'll meet it. There is no deal with the Lord that says, if it's a want, I, the Lord, will do it for you. There is nothing in the scripture, There is that's not part of the agreement. If you want something, there is no commitment from the Lord that says, I'll get it for you. His promise is, I'll get with you what you need. If you want something, you'll have to go get that. Because I can only meet needs. Because the Lord has promised us, whatever he does for it, it will be satisfying. He says he'll give us a drink that we'll never be thirsty again. He says he'll give us a bite of bread that we'll never be hungry again. He says he'll, that when it comes to joy, he'll give us joy that overflows. There'll be no more need for any more joy. I'll give it to you. He says he'll meet needs. And that's what brings us down to a very basic thing. And that's what this story is about. It's called the graves of the greedy, the graves of the lust. Because here's the children of Israel. They have this manna. They have the water. They have all their needs met. And all of a sudden they rise up and they say, hey, we figured this whole God thing out. We have figured out that if we ask of God, God will give it to us. So why stop at needs? Let's go for wants. We want this. We want that. We want meat. Well, you know, if I remember right, the Lord already did give them some meat. He gave them some quail. They were hungry for meat, and he did bring some. But now they've changed it. Instead of it, you know, we need something, Lord. Could you, could you help us with that need? Instead, they've gone way beyond the realm of the protocol of God and man, and now they're saying, hey, we've got you figured out. We want it, and you have to do it. And it's in the realm of, now, it's their right. It's not God's righteousness. It's they think we're entitled to it. Let me tell you something about grace. Grace is, the definition is, unmerited favor. You get favor, and you don't deserve it. The moment that you start demanding it, the moment that you act like you do deserve it, and he has to give it to you, you just fell from it. You just lost it. Because it can't be grace if it's given to you and you deserve it. It's not grace anymore, remember? If it's really grace, you didn't deserve it. You don't have it coming. You're not entitled. And when this people who had the grace of God, the mercy of God, when they moved into the realm of, okay, we're going to have God start meeting my wants, they fell from it. And that's the, the key issue that I find in the maturing of spiritual brethren today.
We're, we're, I'm talking about we're going to get down to where your real heart is at, your real, your own home, how you behave around your own family, how you behave with your brethren, how you really think about your faith. And the issue is going to be, God, how come you won't give me what I want? And for some reason, some people get the idea that they want to tackle that before they want to trust God for their needs. If we were to look around and look at various brethren we know and have known in the past, those who have been successful and those who have not been successful in their personal finances, their personal business, how they conduct their life, and so forth, at the core of it will be, do they know how to distinguish between their needs and their wants? If a man can distinguish and see these are what I need, and he pursues and accomplishes those first, and can say no to his wants until his needs are met, he will be a highly successful man. He'll be responsible for his family and his behavior. He'll have all of those things that he would like to have. His family will be level and steady. It's, it's the man who can't say no to his wants that he gets in trouble and that he doesn't even meet his own needs, even the needs of his own family. And this is a key spiritual training issue. In fact, God was specifically putting them in the wilderness specifically to teach them this. I want you to learn that I'm a God who can meet needs and I'll satisfy your needs. But don't come to me with your wants because I even as God can't satisfy your wants and lusts. Proverbs tells us that a fire is never satisfied. I don't care how many logs you give it. You can just stand there and just keep giving it log after log after log, and you can just never satisfy that fire. That fire will never rise up and say, that's it, I no more logs, I can't take no more. Thank you, I'm full. Proverbs also says the eyes are never satisfied. The eyes are never satisfied. An appetite just keeps coming back and back and back. I mean, you can fill up and your stomach gets full, and you turn around and the next day you got an appetite again. And it's like it, when it comes down to what you do with your eyes, with all of the passion and fire in you, it can never be satisfied. All the appetites of life from ambition and esteem to do good, to food, to sex. All of the passions and fires and appetites of life. God cannot satisfy your lust. And by the way, he has told us, if you come to me and you pursue me to do it, I will not do it. I won't even start with you. Because I know even God can't do it. And so what the issue is for maturity for us is we as a people must learn you don't pursue your wants. You don't pursue and make that first priority. You pursue your needs. You make that the first priority. And then when your needs are met, is it okay to want something? Of course it is. Of course it is. It's okay to want to have a good meal. It's not okay to pursue eating to the point of obesity. It's okay. By the way, brethren, it's okay to have sex. That's how we have children and life and posterity goes on and the joy of marriage. 
But to pursue it in just any relationship? No. To the harm, to the spreading of disease? No. That's when we've gone from meeting a need to getting into lust and getting beyond what God intended. And God set up these safeguards, but he says, you have to control your behavior on this. You know, the irony of these, the children of Israel standing and saying, we want meat, we want meat. Did you know that their flocks were standing at their feet? You know, they had flocks out there in the wilderness. They loved, you know, God fed them too. They had flocks. Well, well that's meat. Well, well, what are they asking God for meat for? They already got some. They, had, they could share some lambs, goats. They had plenty of meat. What's more, they were standing on the banks of the Red Sea. They could have organized some fishing parties and gone out and got all the fish they wanted. In fact, when Moses goes in the rest of the story and he, and he, and he complains to the Lord, the people are about to kill me. You know, they want meat. They want meat. And the Lord says, I'm going to give them some meat. He says, well, uh, well what, what do you mean, Lord? Do you, do you mean you want us to slaughter the flocks? Do you want us to go fishing in the Red Sea? It says right there, you know, Moses has to, he said, no. They could have done that on their own. If they wanted it that bad, they could have looked around and they could have figured it out. Their needs were met. If they wanted something more, they could have done that for themselves. But no, they came to me. They want to engage me in it. They expect me to do it. And they've just completely misunderstood what we're doing here. Completely out of control. And so if you know the rest of the story, you know that the Lord gave them meat. And at the moment that the meat touched their teeth, they died. Now, going back to the part where it says the people complain and the Lord burned them at the edge of the camp, now he, come, he kills them. Black killed them. He gave them meat. They put it in their mouth and they died. Why? Because, brethren, let me tell you something. If you pursue your wants and your lusts to the chagrin of your needs, you might as well kill yourself because that's all you're doing. I mean, that's all you're doing is killing you and your family. And, you know, it's got to be put in kind of those stark terms to get to understand there's a difference between a need and a want. And I, I guess what I would want to say to you is the Lord is not opposed. I believe this with all sincerity. The Lord is not opposed with you having some of your wants met too. He's not opposed to it. What he's opposed to is you getting into the business of thinking that you deserve it and that God should give it to you. You know, I would not recommend to you to go around playing games with God about your wants. I think it's very serious business about you learning that God will meet your needs and you learning to trust him and rely upon him exclusively, intentionally, for those needs. And I mean your real basic needs. I mean a safe shelter for your family, food, good clean food to eat, water to drink, clothing to wear, things like that. And if you look about us, I don't see anybody that the Lord has been leaving out. The Lord's been meeting our needs. And we ought to come to the terms to recognize He really did do that. He really did that. And oh, by the way, because he also loves us and cares for us, he's willing to let us have some wants. But by the way, guys, we're, we're going to have to work for those.
You're going to have to look about you and, and see, well, I'd like to have that. I, I want that. Okay, that's fine. But let's make sure our priorities right and the needs of the family are met right and the needs of our brethren are met correctly first. And let's make sure that we got the needs taken care of. That's the difference between a mature person and an immature person. And just those simple questions there of us going through our life and asking ourselves the question, is this a need or is this a want? We ought to be honest with ourselves about this. And it's not automatic that you don't get your wants. What is automatic is to know and to understand it's God who meets needs. And that's who we should be relying on and looking to to meet those needs. And let's not play games with God about other things. These passages will get repeated again, the mumbling and the grumbling. And in fact, there will be a complaint against Moses himself. And I'll conclude our teaching tonight with that. In chapter uh, 12, Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? And the Lord heard it. This was the issue in which that Miriam had leprosy cast onto her and she spent a week outside of the camp. And it deals with the issue of speaking against, quote, God's anointed, in this case, literally the family members of Moses speaking against Moses and engaging the Lord in it. And it turned out there was a little racial prejudice in Moses' house with Miriam and Aaron. They just thought that the silliest craziest thing that he's ever done. And because they disagreed with him so strongly about that, they decided to start taking chip shots at him. When we go to complain about our brethren, particularly those in leadership, I'm certain that you will find plenty to find fault with. Using my own example, I have a lot of mistakes in my life. I've made a lot of mistakes in my life. And if somebody went back and they scrutinized my life, I'm certain they would find more than sufficient reasons to discount and devalue my life for anything that I would be interested in doing, including going back to the land of Israel. I'm sure somebody could find some reason why I shouldn't be permitted to do that or whatever it is that I would be interested in doing. And in the case of Moses, we know, of course, the other side of the ledger. This is the man who talks to God, and God talks to him face to face. You know, in the Ten of Meaning, he sees the similitude. He sees the outline of God when he talks with him. He talks to him directly. He doesn't talk to him in symbol or parables or, or uh, visions. or I mean, he just talks to him just like you and me. We talk, you know, to each other. And God chose him to be the man who would actually pen the Torah, the whole teaching to us, and explain who God is to us. So I would venture to say Moses is, you know, must be pretty high in stature as far as I think God likes Moses a little bit. And to speak against Moses in this relationship that he has with God and to make references to God about how he's misbehaving before the Lord is about the dumbest thing one could do. And I would suggest to you the same thing with regard to you need to be very careful about how you speak about your fellow brethren in the Lord. There may be a lot going on in that person's heart that God's doing with them you don't have any idea about. God may have plans for that person in his kingdom that you don't have any idea about, and you would look like an idiot, uh, you know, talking ill of one of your brethren, and it turns out that in the kingdom, he's in charge of the city you live in. 
that would look real dumb on your part. Or that his relationship with God was such that we know that the kingdom of God is not horizontal, brethren. We're not all equals. We know there's going to be those who are going to be great and those who are going to be least. And one of the surest ways that you can get relative on this pecking order of great to least and get below somebody is just speak against them. Just speak against them. It's called scoffing. And the Proverbs tells us that when a man scoffs, that he does harm to himself, that he literally lowers himself. If he scoffs against this brother, he goes below him. And that's the last thing you want to do, right? And in the case of this, even the relationship of Miriam and Aaron, brother and sister, even they don't want to do this to Moses. They don't want to do this to another brother. And so we have these very powerful lessons that really talk about us, our relationships one with another. Why do we murmur and complain? Why are we unhappy? How do we behave with one another? I wish we had more time tonight, but we don't. But in future lessons, we'll be bringing this subject up again and we'll elaborate in some more details, particularly in some practical ways in which that we can behave and learn uh, the lessons from the wilderness of how to behave and how not to behave, particularly in how we treat one another. So that'll be the conclusion of our lesson uh, for this evening from Numbers. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the book uh, In the Wilderness. Thank you, Lord, for the lessons of Moses and the children of Israel. Thank you, Lord, that you have a great plan to rise up and to return. Lord, that we can see, that we can be a part of. And Lord, we would ask at the practical level of our own instruction that you would teach us to be a people who would be wise in our affairs and that we would understand the difference between our needs and our wants. Lord, that we would be able to look to you to meet the needs, that we wouldn't be pursuing you for our wants or others or becoming complainers or murmurers because we don't get what we want. Rather, Lord, we should be rejoicing and be content that our needs have been met and enjoy the wholesomeness and the joy of that and learn to be content and not complainers or grumblers. And Lord, in our assembly, you have given us a, a sweet group of people. And as I look in my past and I think back of others, I thank you, Lord, for this congregation, for the vast majority of those that are here who've begun to learn that lesson and apply it and put it to action and, and who do not go around mumbling and complaining. Thank you, Lord. And Lord, we would ask that you would make that lesson sure in our hearts so that we would bear that testimony for others who are young in the Lord coming to terms with those things that we might be used of you to encourage others to also learn to trust you for our needs. So, Lord, we thank you for the great lessons of the Torah, this one in particular. We ask, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit you'd quicken, make it come alive in our own hearts. Cause us to be reminded in the days and weeks that follow as to your great instruction for us to be happy in life, to be content. So we thank you, Lord, for that and for Messiah Yeshua, who's come as our great teacher and our Messiah to, uh, to do all of those things. And we ask this prayer in his name. Amen. For more information about Lion and Lamb Ministries, call our office at 405-447-4429. Our address is Post Office Box 720 
968 Norman, Oklahoma, 73070. Our web address is www.linelam.net. Thank you.